0: Good morning, Christ City. Um, Let me pray. Father God, what an honor it is to preach from your word. I pray that you would uh, fill us with your Holy Spirit this morning, that we might be attentive to hear what you have to say to us as we examine this topic of the intercession of Christ. Would you be with me as I speak, that I would say exactly the words that you would want to be said in the manner that you would want it to be said. In Jesus' name, amen. When I think of the intercession of Christ, my mind inevitably goes to a scene in my childhood of lining up in a school gym. A chair and a table had been set up, along with some partitions, much like you would find in a dental office, the type of partitions anyway. Behind these partitions, we were told, was the priest from the local Catholic parish with which my school was associated. Yes, for a very brief time, I attended Catholic school. My family had just moved from Montreal to Fort McMurray, and my parents, having examined both systems, decided that the Catholic system was best. But I digress. You see, the lineup at the gymnasium was for the Catholic sacrament of confession. We were to sit at the table, we were to confess our sins to the priest, and, and he, through his intercession, done in the name of Christ and the church, would absolve us of our sin. I never did see the priest. For better or worse, my parents had the foresight of telling the school that we were Protestants, and so, along with another oddball kid, I got to sit out the whole thing. And yet, all the while, I observed And this scene etched into my mind. It's etched partly for its beauty and partly for its terror. You see, the notion that one could line up, confess one's sin, and be forgiven of them is a beautiful reflection of the mercy of God. And yet, the notion of spilling out all that I had done wrong to a priest whom I had never met terrified me. Another thing stood out. You know, having grown up in a conservative evangelical church, it was drilled into me time and time again that Jesus' sacrifice is enough. And that as believers we could confess and seek forgiveness from God, directly to God, in Jesus' name. Of course, I didn't fully understand the theology behind this yet, but I knew enough to wonder why the Catholic priest had to mediate. In this conflicted image in my mind, two things stand out. First, the impersonal nature of this sacrament, seemingly devoid of love. And second, the seeming lack of power. After all, Catholic priests are fallible. They can sin. One only has to look at the recent headlines in recent years. And of course, they too die. It was only years later when I became a believer that I would grasp, truly grasp, the intercession of Jesus and how indeed as believers of the gospel we have an intercessor who is greater and more permanent than any earthly priest. Unlike the scene that is etched in my mind, Jesus' intercession is not merely mechanical nor out of duty, but displays and demonstrates the very heart of of Jesus Christ. It's a glorious doctrine that's often underlooked, often ignored, but has these tremendous, tremendous practical implications on the Christian life. My aim this morning is to exhort you to know this Jesus, this Jesus as the ultimate intercessor, and to consider the deep implications on our practical day-to-day, moment-by-moment walk with him. My outline is, uh, has three points. Number one, what is the intercession of Christ? We'll look at that. What is the intercession of Christ? And all of the kind of related questions that that entails. Number two, we'll look at what are the implications? What are the implications that Jesus intercedes for us? Number three, what ought to be our response? And so we'll dive right in. What is the intercession of Jesus Christ? Well, to intercede is to plead on behalf of another. It's a third party that pleads on behalf of another. Jesus pleads on our behalf to the Father. The intercession of Jesus, quite simply, is uh, what Jesus is doing right now. Often we think of Jesus in terms of what he's done in the past. We've been studying this in our series, haven't we? The preexistent Christ, the incarnate Christ, the the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ. But the temptation is to think of Jesus merely as a figure from the past and our salvation just as a function of believing what he has done then. Sometimes we also think about and talk about what Christ will do in the future. We read passages like revelation twenty one uh, where we anticipate Jesus being with his bride, his church and and us basking in his in his presence. But what about now? What is Jesus doing right now, and how does that relate to my day to day walk with him? Well, it turns out that Jesus is not just passively sitting back in heaven. Uh, kind of with his legs up, waiting for the end of time. A key passage that clues us into this is Romans 8.34. It says this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus, having risen from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and now sits at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. And he's doing these things actively. We like it generally when people intercede on our behalf. Think of the faithful friend who stood in the gap for you, or who stood by you in tough times. What a relief it is when a friend comes alongside you, and uh, particularly in awkward situations, right? And says, let me ask for you when we know that our friend will likely have that person's ear, pleading on behalf of another implies that, it implies, well, that the intercessor can do better than the intercessee. That those being pleaded to might hear the plea of the intercessor, and because of his plea, because of his position, or because of what he has done, would be compelled to act. To be a good intercessor, one has to not only have sympathy to listen to the intercessee, the pleas of the intercessor, but also the means and power to do something about it. And in this, Jesus is supreme. He is the perfect intercessor. Let me explain. In the Old Testament, we find all sorts of examples of intercession. We think of Moses, who, for instance, sought to intercede for for his people before Pharaoh in Exodus 5. Let my people go, he says. And again before God, after the Israelites had created and and worshipped the golden calf in Exodus 32. In that case, Moses appealed to the reputation of God himself to spare his people from destruction. We think also of the the uh, Levitical priests, who would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And yet in each of these instances, though the intercession worked for, for a time, the intercession ultimately would fall short. Though the Israelites gained reprieve, their generation would not see the promised land, nor would Moses. Though the priests offered sacrifices to appease the wrath of God, Sacrifices offered by Levitical priests could never fully, perfectly atone for sin. Moreover, sacrifices had to be offered daily for the sins of both the priest himself and for the people, and priests were ultimately fallible and weak. It was not a permanent intercession. Jesus, however, is superior. He's He's superior not only in his appointment as high priest, but also in the sacrificial offering that he's able to present. You see, instead of presenting animal sacrifices, he points to the accomplished work on the cross, and he presents himself. But there's more. Hebrews 8.1 says that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, Think about that for a moment. We have an intercessor who's not just some nobody who happens to have the ear of the Father. We have the second person of the Trinity who sits at his right hand. In order for him to fulfill this role, he had to ascend. He could not have remained on earth. But but wait, there's even more. You see, Jesus not only serves as priest, but he also serves as king and prophet. As prophet, he speaks to the people on behalf of God and to God on behalf of the people. And as king, his words hold authority. In Jesus, in Christ, the entire way of relating to God has shifted, has changed. And so, Jesus' pleas, never fall on deaf ears. Why? Well, because he's the perfect intercessor. And because he's the perfect intercessor, he knows perfectly the will of the Father, and Jesus knows perfectly the needs of his people. Hebrews 4.15 reminds us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so Jesus will never ask the Father for something that the Father cannot give, and the Father will never refuse anything that Jesus asks. One theologian, Thomas Goodwin, puts it this way, The greatness of Christ with God and the graciousness of God to Christ together with the oneness of wills and unity of affections in them both, so that Christ will be sure to ask nothing which his Father will deny, and his Father will not deny anything which he shall ask. But there's yet another role that makes Jesus' intercession supreme, and that is the role of bridegroom and head of the church. Jesus calls his church, his bride, to whom he is engaged to, to whom he is betrothed. We get the sense that this intercession, this pleading, is not only active, but it is motivated out of a deep love. He truly and genuinely loves us. And so we can be assured that whatever he does ask the Father will always be done out of love for us for our good and for his glory. Jesus is constantly moving us toward the perfection of union between us and him. We can only fathom a faint echo of what this means as we reflect on this in our own earthly marriages. John 17 gives us a glimpse of the depths to how Jesus prays for his disciples, how he intercedes for us. Consider verse 26. I made known to them your name, Father, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What words of love? What an ask. Well, two questions remain unanswered in this kind of what is Christ's intercession, and that is this. What does he intercede about? and when does he intercede well the second question is a, a little easier to answer he intercedes for us all the time that's his present role uh, remember hebrews 7:24 through 25 but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, to god through him since he always lives he always lives to make intercession for them What does he intercede about? Well, he intercedes to bring about the ultimate union between his people and himself. And so that involves interceding for our sin. Now, at this point, you might be asking the question, well, didn't the work of justification, that is the atoning for our sin on the cross, didn't that already accomplish this? Well, the answer is yes. But what justification accomplished intercession applies. What justification accomplished, intercession applies. Dane Ortland, the author of Gentle and Lowly, describes the intercession of Jesus as the constant hitting refresh of our justification in the court of heaven. And because Jesus' work of justification paid for our sin once and for all, and in exchange he gave us his righteousness, You know, think of a bank balance that's so positively high, it could never run out. And since Jesus conquered death, the penalty for sin, and since Jesus now sits at the right hand of God interceding for us, and since the Father will never refuse what Jesus asks, he is able to save us to the uttermost. That is incredibly comforting. There's no person whom Jesus has saved in which he has not mentioned his or her name to the Father. If you are a genuine believer in Christ this morning, Jesus has mentioned and continues to mention your name to the heavenly Father. Meditate that on that for a minute, for a minute. Meditate on that for a minute and we will realize the depth to which Jesus loves you and me. It means that we can go to him with all of our burdens and all of our requests. We can pray and we can present our requests to him in full confidence. Not that Jesus necessarily will give us exactly what we want. You know, Sometimes we ask with mixed motives. But knowing that he loves us, and has our best interests in mind and will intercede for us, will ask the Father for us in a way that pleases the Father. It also means that when we sin, we can run to him with a broken and a contrite heart, confess our sin, and he will forgive us. 1 John 1.9 reminds us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus' active, ongoing intercession is exactly what we need when we feel that our anger is about to get out of control or when we are tempted to look at pornography or when we are just about ready to give up. Here's the problem, though. Despite knowing that Jesus is the ultimate intercessor. We are, well, wonderful at finding, at finding poor substitutes. We often settle for far less and we suffer as a result. One way we do this is by eliminating any intercessor altogether. Consider how this might look like in a conflict between two persons. In a conflict, often we respond as though only people are involved. We fight or we flight, ignoring the fact that in our conflict, we can turn to Jesus, our intercessor, who can help us to love a person. Love that person that we're in conflict with, that we, well, don't like very much at that moment. Another manifestation of eliminating the intercessor is to seek to approach God on our own terms. We plead with him. We appeal to our own performance as a sacrifice. And when we inevitably come up short, we blame God. Such relating to God without Jesus in between fails to realize the true nature of the gospel and Jesus' love toward us. Sometimes we don't eliminate the intercessor, but we replace him altogether with, with another. Going back to this conflict example, for, example uh, for instance, some confess our sin to the other person, knowing that we have offended them, thinking that in asking for their forgiveness alone, or seeking to appease them alone, that we have somehow dealt with our sin. And in so doing, we make that other person, whom we have sinned against, the unwitting intercessor. But though the offended party can extend grace and forgiveness to us, they cannot absolve us of our sin. We must realize that sin is first and foremost against God, even if the result is of that offense is sin against another party. Still another way um, that we often respond is in our suffering. How quick we are to commiserate with one another or rely too much on another for encouragement rather than taking it to the Lord in prayer. How quick we are to to offer soothing, therapeutic, comforting words rather than giving true comfort by presenting Christ, by kneeling next to our brother or sister and praying to the intercessor together with them. In all cases of poor substitutions, we replace the intercession of Jesus with someone or something that either lacks power, sympathy, or love, or a combination of the three. Now it's here that I should take a very short aside to talk about intercession and community. You see, the danger in what I've just said is that we can think that the church, our community, is not necessary. That we can just kind of go about life with me and my bud, Jesus. Jesus, the intercessor. Well, let me be clear. That, too, is unbiblical. Unbiblical. Indeed, 1 Peter 2.5 declares us to be a holy priesthood. We are to bear with one another in love, Ephesians 4.2, and confess our sins one to another and pray for one another that we may be healed, James 5.18. As believers, we believe in the priesthood of all believers, meaning that each of us, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have a priestly duty to one another, to intercede for one another, to reflect Jesus as intercessor. We also have a duty to keep each other accountable in love for Christ and for one another. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, bearing one another's burden, so fulfill the law of Christ. We are to be the visible hands and feet of Christ. We are to be a, a means of grace to one another. So, How does community and intercession fit together? What is the role of our fellow brothers and sisters? Well, to find out more, let me just give a very quick plug for our book study, Life Together with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, that we're doing this fall. But the short answer is this. The short answer is that as fellow priests, we offer our hurting brother or sister, Jesus himself. We walk alongside interceding for our hurting uh, brother or sister by pointing them to the intercessor himself. We seek to be a means of grace, not the source of grace. Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, writes, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. Well, with that said, let us return to our main train of thought. We have looked at what is the intercession of Christ, and I've teased out some implications and and potential areas of unbelief. And so finally, what is our response? What ought to be our response? And here again is is Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What strikes me about Christ's intercession is how profoundly personal it is. If we knew of Christ's death and resurrection, but not his intercession, we'd be tempted to think of his salvation in kind of heady, theological, almost formulaic terms. Jesus would would seem impersonal, mechanical, almost terrifying, a bit like that that confession scene in my school gym so many years ago. Yet the Bible assures us that Jesus' intercession is incredibly personal and reflects his heart and his disposition toward us. He loves us. It reminds us that Jesus is not passive. He is actively involved in perfecting us, in beautifying us, in loving us. To know that Jesus, who went to the cross for us, is mentioning my name to the Father in times when I sin, pleading with him on the basis of his accomplished work for mercy. That assures me that no sin is greater than his mercy, that I can always come back to him, and find grace. To know that Jesus, who has been made like his brothers in every respect, is pleading with the Father when I suffer, is great comfort to me because Jesus knows exactly what I am going through, down to the depths of my heart, through all of the emotions, and he knows exactly what to ask the Father for. To know that Jesus is able and will always ask in line with the Father's will and that the Father will never refuse any ask of Jesus gives me great comfort. He is not just any intercessor. He is the one to whom the Father hears and acts. And so how ought we to respond? Our response ought to be to draw near to him. Draw near to him in your sin. Draw near to him in your suffering. Draw near to him as you walk alongside a brother or sister who is sinning or suffering. And be encouraged by what he is doing. As one famous minister once put it, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million of enemies. And yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. So I want to leave you with this question. How would knowing Christ's active and able intercession change the way that you live this week? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious doctrine of Jesus' intercession, that he is priest, prophet, and king, and that you in your mercy have made a way to demonstrate your very heart of love toward us by sending your son Jesus not only to die on the cross for us, but to be raised to ascend to heaven and to sit at your right hand that he may intercede for us. What a glorious doctrine. Help us to live in light of that, to draw near to you in our sin and our suffering, to not be afraid of you, knowing, knowing that you have our best interests in mind. And help us not to fear other things because Jesus mentions our name to the Father actively, presently, ongoingly. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.